you very much. Good morning, everyone. It is a pleasure to see all of you on this very snowy spring day. Uh, uh, I, you may have caught some of you the little bit of the um, a little bit of an anticipatory note when Mike noted that he had an inch of snow at his place, and then proceeded to announce that the sunrise service will be at his place <laughs> next Sunday. And um, I think the other thing you should bring, in addition to the list of things that he said, would probably be like a snow shovel. Would probably be good, a good idea. Yeah. So. Hopefully not, uh, but uh, we'll look forward to that time uh, of worship out there and then fellowship to follow, and I hope everyone can make it out there to a wonderful spot on uh, Meadow Creek Road. All right, uh, I would ask you to pray for the situation, the search and rescue situation at the north of town here. Um, the two twin girls, seven years old, um, last seen last night, about yesterday afternoon, about four o'clock, and uh, as of around eight o'clock this morning, uh, still not found. So, um, do me a prayer for them, for the family, and for the safety of those who are searching. And uh, it's, I can tell you, uh, it was just getting colder up there uh, by the minute. As uh, when I left, it was just getting colder and colder. So. And the snow was falling harder and harder. So one thing is if they're moving around, they should be able to find tracks, which was impossible to do last night. So Lord willing, they will be found safe and sound. All right. <clears throat> Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn to the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 2. I'll begin reading at verse 7, as I did last week, which we want to keep the, the mental flow of what's happening in this section, and we'll run, uh, run on down to, through verse 17. So if you are able, please, uh, if you'd stand with me for the reading of God's holy word, 1 John chapter 2, beginning at verse 7. <clears throat> Beloved, I am writing to you, no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in, in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world... The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, 
but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. God adds his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Please be seated. We have a number uh, here this morning that uh, were uh, not here last week, so I'll do a little bit of review and try not to get uh, too, uh, too engaged in my review so we don't get on to the new material. But uh, as I read through this passage, I, I, I hope that I read it in a way that gave you an idea of how it all worked together. Because when you first read through it, it does seem like you have three sections that are sort of just loosely there and in fact they seem to be almost standalone but really everything that is is in this section is governed by the by this discussion of the old commandment and the new commandment and it just takes John a while to uh, get around to actually saying what the new commandment is and he talks about it in relation to its various manifestations and uh, uh that, that we might see in the life of the church and in our own hearts. But we, as we noted last time, this boils down to the new commandment is found there in verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. That's where everything is going in this passage, I believe. And if we, if we put this into the positive rather than the negative of do not love the world, well, that implies, does it not, that there is something or someone that we should love more than anything else. And it's very clear in this passage that the idea of knowing God and being one with Him and walking in a way that is pleasing in His sight would lend us to, to come to the conclusion that you and I are to love our God more than we love the world. Now, as John said at the beginning there, it's... This is not, this is an old commandment. You can, and we looked at several different places in the Old Testament where we saw commands about love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and a number of other places as well. So it's nothing new, in other words. But then John says, but it is new. This is a, there's something new about this, new in, in quality, uh, not so much in terms of timeline. And it comes about because of grace. It comes about because uh, now when, when the Lord makes this command to us to love him, we actually have some uh, hope in that commandment. Remember the law of God being described by the Apostle Paul as a schoolmaster that drives us to Christ. The law in the Old Testament is seen as something that ultimately could not be kept by fallen man. But now when God makes that command, the hope is more obvious. Now the, the hope was in shadows during the old covenant because of the sacrificial system and, and the whole uh, tabernacle and the temple worship services and all of those things those are shadows of the realities of heaven. Those are the shadows of things to come. But when Christ came, the shadows go away. Christ fulfilled all those things. And now when, when that commandment is made to us, there is hope because Christ has fulfilled it on our behalf. And the Lord looks at his righteousness 
and imputes it to our account. And we stand before him uh, free of fear, free of dread of his judgment because of what Christ has done. So we were looking at this, beginning to look at this passage in various ways to think about, well, all right, if we're to love God more than we love the world, and we have hope that we might actually be able, by the grace of God, to even you know, in some frail way be able to, uh, to live according to this commandment uh, without dread of judgment, how do we love our God? How do we love our God? Well, we noted in that first section, verses 9 through 11, that we love God by seeing him. In other words, by looking around, being observant, and paying attention to him where he is. And particularly, the focus here is about loving, loving your brothers, not hating them, and not being a liar and saying, oh, I, I, uh, I love God, but I really can't stand that guy. And that's about seeing God's image in others. As I look around this congregation, um, I have, a, I have a, a great appreciation. Let's see, let's make sure I'm, this is going to be an honest statement. Yep, I have a great appreciation for everybody sitting here. But that does not mean that I uh, somehow think that you're, you're perfect. And I know uh, that, um, at least for those who've been here for a while, I know you have an appreciation for me. Um, but I'm also pretty sure that you know that I'm not perfect. That appreciation comes, one, because of our common experience that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. But even more fundamental than that is recognizing that God has created us. And he's created us in his image to be his representatives. You have as much standing as a child of God, if you're in Jesus Christ, before him as I do. I mean, the names and the titles and whatever else, that doesn't, that doesn't matter in Christ. And so we have this, this way of loving God by loving what he has created. Loving by loving that which he has uh, put his stamp upon of ownership, of character, of beauty, of quality, all those things in spite of the sins that so easily beset us that are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. So we, we love him by seeing his image in others and, and not detesting them, not hating them, not rejecting them, but rather choosing them in the same way that he chose us, which was choosing not on the basis of our merit, but simply upon his love. And so we love each other in that same way. And therefore, uh, just as Jesus said, you know, if you go and you visit someone in prison, you give somebody a garment, you give somebody a, a glass of water, my name, you're doing that to me. It's that kind of love for the Lord. And then also seeing God, not just in the things he created, but seeing him in light of his commands, coming to understand him in accordance with what he has said about himself and what he requires of us to do. For is it not true that when someone gives you an instruction about something, anything, it doesn't matter what, it could be something extremely simple or it can be something very complex. It could be something of no moment whatsoever or it could be something 
that is deep and profound and has incredible significance for many others uh, in the world, you know, that follows in, uh, in history. Uh, whether it's minuscule or, or magnificent, it doesn't matter. When we hear an instruction about something, we immediately learn something about the person giving instruction. We learn whether they're arbitrary. We learn whether they're compassionate. We learn whether they're patient. We learn whether they're impatient. We learn whether um, they are realistic, or at least from our perspective, or unrealistic. We learn whether they're detail control freaks, or we learn that they're like, hey, there it is. Have at it. Tell me when you're done. You know, and, and I don't really want to know about the mess in between. That all reflects on the character of God. And when we look at his commands in his word and what he calls upon us to do, we come to see him for who he is. In some measure, we can begin to appreciate the incredible love, wisdom, power, and, and ability to think in detail and plan in a way that far exceeds any of our own and uh, own abilities in those areas, even though we share some of those things. He's made us in his image after all. But nonetheless, uh, it brings us to walk humbly before him, or it should, as we recognize that in his commands, we see his sovereignty and we, like Job, should put our hands over our mouth and say, all right, I'm done talking, Lord. I just want to hear what you have to say. And that's a wonderful way to love him. And when we walk by seeing his way and walking in it, it has the benefit of not only leading others in the right way by example, but also keeps us from tripping over things and stumbling, as the passage says here. And then we began to take a look at that second section, which is verses 12 through 14. And, and this really, in building upon this, we just mentioned that part of coming to him and walking in his way and seeing him should bring us to humility. Well, this second uh, way of loving God is by, by knowing him. And when we look at this, it really, it, it's simple in one way, but it's perplexing because of its position in the passage and wondering what is John doing with this repetition, which is so obvious and clear, <clears throat> and in some cases, word for word. Well, there, there is the aspect um, in, well, in many, many languages, but uh, certainly in Hebrew and also in Greek, um, the, the, the Eastern mindset uses repetition, not just because, well, just in case you forgot it and didn't get it the first time. I mean, there is that aspect of it. But repetition has to do with emphasis. And if something is repeated, it's not just, um, you know, empty words. It's not just filling time. It's about saying, this is important enough that I need to repeat it again. And you'd better be paying attention. There are some interesting differences that are here um, in, the, in the grammar. We'll talk about that in a moment. But the content essentially is the same. So let's pay attention here where we love God in the light of who he is. Now 
there's, there's an aspect of relationship that is brought out here in this section as we love him. This, uh, the emphasis here is upon relationship. It's not upon <clears throat> the age of the people he's addressing. It's not that he's literally saying to, all right, all of those uh, of you who are under the age of 12, I'm talking to you right now. And then, and then uh, you old geezers, okay, I'm talking to you now. And uh, you young in the prime of life, uh, I'm going to talk to you. That's not really what he's talking about. He's speaking more of relationship and position within the body of Christ. So when he speaks to the little children, we know from taking a look at John's uh, epistles especially, that he, he loves to use the term little children when he's addressing believers. And we pointed out last time that John is about 90 by the time he's writing this. So everybody's a little kid to him. All right. Um, so there's that. He has a very. It's a very fatherly term of endearment as he's speaking to the flock, and and I think the emphasis here, as we pointed out last week, has to do with with the necessity for walking humbly as little children with the faith of a little child. There's a there's a connection here between the two. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And then uh, in the latter part of verse 13, he says, I write to you, children, because you know the Father. And that's parallelism that builds on each other. There's a strong connection between forgiveness and knowing God. And, and to be forgiven for sins for his name's sake suggests that we're not forgiven Okay, you ready for this? We're not forgiven for our name's sake. It's for his. That's innately humble in our attitude. We bring nothing to the table to merit redemption. It's for the sake of, of our God and him alone that we are redeemed. So we walk humbly before him and love him by knowing him in that kind of relationship uh, humbly as a little child before our Father. Now, this could also have the idea of those who are young in Christ, but I don't think that's even that's really the, the primary emphasis. I think it really has to do with our comprehension of our position in Christ in relationship to our Lord and to walk humbly before Him and to love Him that way by being humble. Um, uh, parents, you know, and uh, oh, and all of you who were children at one time and had parents, which pretty much covers all of us. Um, you know, when when children back talk to their parent, do you immediately spring to oh, that kid must really love his mom and dad, right? No, we don't. We, we, we realize that there is a love problem. It's the object of love really is in the heart of the child for himself or herself, not for the, the one who is in authority over them. And that brings me to the next one. I, I'm writing to you fathers. Oh, let me, let me uh, just tell you about that little grammar thing right now here because that's, this is a good, good enough spot to do it. So you'll notice in the first three, See how you, you grammar, you grammar police. See how well you've got on this. 
What's the difference between the first three statements and the last three statements? Uh, big glaring should, should just jump right out at you. I am writing and then I write. Yeah. Two different tenses in the Greek for you. Anybody study Greek in here? Hopefully some of you do. Um, the I am writing is a present tense. It speaks of an ongoing urging, an ongoing um, uh, encouragement that he has uh, uh, in mind. Uh, it's, it suggests that this isn't the first time necessarily that he's talked to them about these things and that it won't be the last. But then the I write is a past tense verb. And it doesn't mean I... So, so I've seen some English translations go, I have written. And... I realize what they're trying to do. Like say, well, but I don't really think that's the emphasis. It could be, could be done that way. But this is a simple past tense, not a perfect past tense. So this is just almost, it's almost, you could translate it, I wrote to you. But you can take that in Greek and just, whereas the, the um, a perfect tense or a present tense is just something that's an ongoing thing. The simple past means it was done in the past and it's settled. It's something that is settled. So what he is really saying here is, okay, um, I've been writing. I am writing now. I'm going to keep writing. But these are things to encourage you about. But this is not up for discussion. I'm writing to you. This, what I'm saying to you comes with authority and is to be taken as such. I write to you. Pay attention. So now, maybe as you think about, well, I write to you fathers, or I am writing to you fathers. He's writing to those who are, let's put it this way, who may be a little older in Christ. Those who positionally have been there, done that, as far as the Christian life is concerned. They're in leadership in the church, uh, or have a degree of maturity that... Um, I could even say, in a sense, is earned in the sense of there's been study, there's been practice, and all of those sorts of things, so that by the exercise of righteousness, folks are progressing in sanctification, and such become the fathers of the church, become those who are, uh, if not in an actual office, at least by their wisdom and character and, and uh, knowledge, uh, have the ability to counsel and the ability to lead God's people. But pay attention here. Notice something about this. Do you notice something unique about this pair of statements? I write to you fathers, I write to you fathers. What, is you, what sets this one apart, these, this couplet apart from the other two? There's absolutely no change. Each one, the other two have some little nuance, but this one, and I, now I'm surmising here, but I think that what John is saying is, look, those of you that are positionally the more mature in Christ in the church, who may figure that nobody needs to tell you what to do, they need to listen to you. Your position is not enough. Just the fact that you 
are older and wiser and all of that doesn't necessarily mean that somebody should actually pay attention to you. You too still need to, I mean, in other words, he's just addressed them as little children. The fathers that he's talking about here were included in that. They still, and at least for sheer age, comparison to John, they're still little kids. But it's really the idea of humbly recognizing that even in your leadership, even in your maturity, to know the Father is everything. To know Him. Remember years ago when I was uh, going through my licensure exams, many years ago, and we had quite a discussion about church eldership in the, in the church government section. Actually, that would have been my ordination exam. Anyway, I had a, 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 an older minister came up to me. He's now retired. Um, an older minister came up to me and said, um, you know, you need to, see, how do you put it? Basically, um, learn what an elder means, or learn what it means to be an elder, and you will be a great man. And I, I've thought about that statement for a long time. For a long time, I didn't really agree with it. Because I thought he was basically making a kind of a passive-aggressive statement that he didn't agree with my view of eldership. <laughs> but hey, that's the cockiness of the young. Um, and ultimately, I never really followed up with him on that. I kind of wish I had. Because I, I wonder what he really meant by that. But I rather think he probably was not just thinking about, hey, make sure you know your form of government and what an elder is supposed to do. He may very well have had this passage in mind. Because if you're going to be a leader, whether it's in your home, whether it's in an office of the church, whether it's in society, in any, even in secular uh, employments, or occupations. If you really want to be a leader, you can throw the word elder in there if you want. But if you want to, if you want to have uh, influence based upon the things that you believe you've learned and accomplished throughout your life, the best thing that you can do is to know God. Because if you don't pursue him, you don't love God by striving to know him, what you will really end up with is a person who is full of himself and will do more harm than good, no matter how much you've experienced, no matter how much you intellectually know. Because you will, you will not see yourself in proper relationship to him. And I think John repeats this word for word twice to get this point across. Get over yourself and know God. Get over yourself, fathers, and know God. Finally, in the third couplet here of the young men, I am writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. And that phrase is repeated in the second couplet, but there are things that are added to it. I write to you because you are strong. The word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So when we're loving God by seeking to know him, 
We come to him uh, striving to know him in humility by recognizing, knowing him in, in relationship to his authority over us, which is what that's all about with the fathers. Fathers, remember, you're not the ultimate authority God is. But now to the young men, there's, there's much more. There's action involved here. There's activity here. Now, I find it interesting that this one is last. I think most of you will probably remember the account of, of the sisters, Martha and Mary. And Jesus is in their home. And what's Martha doing? Martha's Miss Busy Bee. She's going around doing all these things, doing stuff. And what's Mary doing? Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus, hanging on every word that he has to say. And Martha, like a lot of us who are busy bees, is complaining. Why do I have to carry this dead wood? Look at all of this stuff that has to be done. How come everybody's not doing all this stuff? How come I'm the only one? Am I the only one here? Uh, boy, you know, I, I hope you're not too tired from watching me work. You know, you see, there's a mug out there I've seen advertised on Facebook that way. And I've thought about buying it many times, but it's just such a smart aleck thing to put out there in the world. That I resisted the temptation. But you know, when we are in our various, in our walks with the Lord Jesus Christ, in our various uh, seasons of life, I think all of us know that there are times when we're more active than others. And, uh, you know, we, 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 we love that, we relish it, we love to see accomplishment, we, we like being busy, we like doing all those sorts of things. And John is really speaking, I think, to those who are um, in this category of those who want to know God um, uh, in their service to him or in activity. If, if you're filling in blanks, that's what I have on mine. You can put it whatever you like there. But I think this is, uh, we've talked about those who are young in Christ, those who are mature in Christ. This is about when, uh, this is about those who are, I couldn't come up with one word thing. So this is about those who are the point of the spear in Christ. The ones who are on the front lines, the ones who are, 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 you know, in the, in the, they're involved in everything. And whether it's teaching, service, uh, whatever it might be. And, uh, I'm not so much this way anymore, but I, I remember, I remember what it was like to be young. Yeah, I think I remember that. Um, when you're young and you're full of vigor and strength and you put your hand to something and it moves and there's a strength, there's a power there, there's a, there's a feeling of accomplishment that's kind of euphoric and um, addictive and you want to do more of it and you can very easily become workaholics. <laughs> um, but notice the, the focus here about those who are the busiest in the church. We'll put it that way. About, about what it means to love God. Notice that the loving God aspect here, as you know him, is not about 
um, just all that you accomplish, of ticking off your to-do list for God. The focus here is about remembering what the source of your strength is. You do not honor God if you think that by the strength of your arm, the strength of your mind, that you are doing something great for Jesus. You honor him when you recognize what the source of your strength truly is as you go about doing those things that he calls you to do. And the source of that strength is found in the second parallel uh, 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 um, statement here. Uh, You are strong and the word of God abides in you. God's word is the source of your strength. I mean, perhaps John here is thinking of the words of Psalm 119 and verse 9, which is probably something that almost everyone in here knows and has known for many years. How can a young man keep his way? By guarding it according to your word. What he's saying is that in your knowledge of God, don't turn your back on what he says about himself and what you're to do and where your strength comes from, where your wisdom comes from, where your might comes from, is him. So by all means, flex your muscles in the service of God, but don't flex the truth. Stay true and connected to his word. And by his grace, you will overcome the evil one. And that brings us to the third and final section, which is one that is often just kind of pulled out of the context, and it starts, uh, you know, many, 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 many messages have been uh, uh, preached on 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Because it's just, it just seems like a self-contained nugget of truth there, and in some ways it is. But it's so much richer when we understand that nugget in its context and recognize that as that this is this is an old commandment that has new implications because of Jesus Christ. So that when he finally gets to the actual commandment here in verse 15, it's finally here. Do not love the world or the things in the world. It comes down to then loving God by obeying him. And I do think it is really important to recognize here that John doesn't start with obedience in this section. All of us can get that obedience thing. We we really, sometimes we, we balk at obeying, but we all love the concept of, you know, Quid pro quo, prid, oh boy, I am tired. Quid, you know what I mean, okay. (laughs) Ay, 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 that's terrible. Anyway, if I obey, God will bless me. We're all into that. Or put another way, God will bless me if I obey. And I'm glad that John didn't start there. John started with actually seeing God and knowing him and he started with those relational aspects and then go to obedience as a demonstration of the reality of that relationship, not the entrance into that relationship. So we've had an emphasis upon light, upon seeing God and seeing his way, 
we've had an emphasis upon knowledge and relationship in knowing him. Now the emphasis is, all right, now that you know him, now that you're, you're hanging in there with God um, because of who he is and what he calls us to do, in this second reason for writing uh, that we are, we're speaking of here about the new commandment, uh, we're to obey him unto the end. And it speaks about, this is speaking about perseverance. Certainly there are many temptations, are there not, for us to quit, for us to give in, for us to take a different path because the one we're on seems hard and we'd really like to find one that isn't, isn't so hard. But in this, in this uh, section, I want you to notice a couple of things. First of all, how do we obey him? If we're going to love him by obedience, well, all right, what's that obedience going to look like? Is it, is it a slavish, okay, fine sort of thing? I mean... Okay, I grant you, that's better than nothing. But that's not what God is looking for. He wants us, first of all, verse 15, I think what's, I think what's involved in verse 15 is, if you boil it down to the essence of this, is have your priorities straight. Obey Him according to His priorities. It's really easy for us, uh, I'll go back to the, the child as children, uh, in our situation, both for ourselves and we see it in our own kids sometimes, that um, there's a, sometimes a willingness to obey as long as we get to kind of tweak the terms. But the Lord has other priorities. The world system that God has created has been corrupted by sin through and through. When this says, love not the world, Many of you are probably familiar with this. The word here is cosmos. Cosmos can, can mean the, cre- the, you know, the things of creation, the, the material world and so on. But it's very often used, perhaps even most often used, to speak of the world system in which we live. And it encompasses, yes, the physical realm, but it also encompasses uh, such things as uh, government and society and and values and the impact of of human character upon the created order. And this world is broken in many, many ways. And we read in Romans chapter 8 that the reason it is broken is because of man's sin. The corruption has permeated it. Now, admiring his creation, and by extension, him, is not the problem. After all, right, think about Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glories of God, the wonders, his, uh, the firmament shows his handiwork day and day, utter speech, night and night, shows, gives forth knowledge. Right? So, yes, you can look around and have cause to worship and, and admire him for the marvel of his creation. But when it comes to what man has done with it and the system that uh, God actually created, such things as government and so on, but man, man has twisted it, perverted it, and, and stained every part of it. 
The problem here, and that, that John is, is bringing out in this commandment, is not to become an, um, you know, an, an ascetic um, um, you know, monk or something and go off and hide somewhere and, and, and get away from anything that might remind us of, of any pleasure or whatever. No. The problem here is loving the corruption of the world system, the world system in spite of the Creator's original intent. If you really know Him... You will love him by his grace. But brothers and sisters, he does not tolerate rivals for his love. And the world system around us, the cosmos around us, is full of rivals. One of the things that Brother Mike has been uh, teaching in the Sunday School Hour, and not just uh, recently, but in past days as well, is that it's not enough to simply throw a bunch of Bible verses at people in one respect to uh, uh, give them your viewpoint. You do have to recognize what you're actually throwing those Bible verses at. You need to have some recognition uh, and, and rejection of the corruptions of the world system so that you can adequately address the false concepts of reality that the fallen, that fallen man has with actual reality, God's reality, as seen in his, in his world, yes, but also in his word and his actions. Uh, so we are to obey according to his priority, uh, not ours. Again, we are to love the Father, Note that priority here. We talked about this last time. Is this love, the Father's love for us or our love for the Father? And the context really seems to be our, our, uh, our love for the Father is what is in view here. We can say that we love him, but if we hate our, our brother, we're a liar. Um, we can say that we love him, but if we love the world and its fallenness and its corruptions more than him, we're liars. The love of the, and it's not even, John doesn't pull any punches here. He doesn't just say, you know, you got some problems with your love. You know, you need to beef it up a bit. He says, it's not there. You can say all you want to about loving him, but it is not there if you are in love with the corruption of this world. So obey according to his priorities. Secondly, verse 16 very familiar verse to all of us. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but it's from the world. This it really is an expansion on his priorities, but I thought it was worth um, shifting focus just a little bit and thinking from our own perspective. Obey, it's kind of the opposite side of the fence, really, outside of the coin, from his priorities, there's, there's his priorities, and then there's our temptations, the things that would lure us away. Uh, they're opposite of his priorities. Now, these temptations uh, have been discussed uh, many, many times, again, and don't really need a whole lot of explanation. The desires of the flesh, uh, of course, this 
can be, uh, it, it, it speaks to every desire of the flesh, um, whether it's uh, food or, or rest or um, pleasures of all sorts, whatever it might be. Uh, desires of the eyes, really speaking to being content, ultimately. I mean, and and the, the other side of contentment is gratitude, being thankful for what you have and not uh, being covetous of what you don't. Um, and then um, the pride in possessions really speaks of not just how much stuff you have, though there, you know, there's a lot to be said here for how much stuff you have and how much you value it. <clears throat> but it also has to do with the things that those possessions bring, whether it's personal satisfaction or position in society. Um, you know, it's the whole idea of he who has the most toys wins is a complete and utter lie. Um, but that's one that for all of us is, can be, some more than others, can be a hard thing to let loose of. Well, in spite of those temptations, we're to walk in obedience to him and love him more than things, love him more than position, love him more than pleasure, love him more than, than uh, uh, just the fulfillment of our own agendas and, and sense of fulfillment. Um, there are holy counterparts to all of these things. If you stop and think about it. The desires of the flesh. Did God create desire for food? Yes. Did God create desire for, uh, of, of men for women and women for men? Yes. Did God create desire for being comfortable? Yes, I. The older I get, the more that desire becomes a familiar one to me, and so on. The Lord created us that way. Created us, in fact, uh, uh, to enjoy those things from His hand. The Book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon makes that very clear. That God has given you many things; they're His gifts. Enjoy them. But when they become your gods, you got a problem. And the love of the Father is not in you. If you can't turn loose of this stuff for the sake of what is right and true in the sight of God, whether it's in relationships with one another, relationship to Him, your service for Christ, whatever it is, if your stuff and your position and your pleasures are more important to you, you can talk about loving God all you want, but John says you are a liar and the love of God is not in you. This is serious stuff we're talking about. Now, this kind of brings some things full circle. Um, the emphasis here being upon the sinful expression of things that are really in their place and in their proper proportion uh, and relationship are, are fine. But the sinful expression of these things, for example, go back to the beginning what was the emphasis there? Hating your brother. Hating your brother. Why do we hate one another? Where do wars and fights come from among you, according to James? They come from the lust of your hearts. They come from your own sinful desires to have something at the expense of someone else, whether it's God or your brother.
really in verse 16, you have here the summary of the corruptions of the world that we're to despise. And this obedience, we truly love God. We don't quit when the going gets difficult because of the temptations that are there, because of the afflictions and the oppression of the wicked, loving God faithfully is beyond our ability. He must give us the grace to do it. But I'm thankful, therefore, that verse 17 is there. For the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And this is where the emphasis upon perseverance becomes clear. You want to know God? You want to walk with him in a way that demonstrates your love for him? Um, keep in mind that your, your obedience is not just about a momentary thing. Our God is working for time and eternity. He's not just working for this moment. We are such momentary people. But keep in mind that even though it may be difficult to walk in obedience at some given point in your life, or many given points in your life. He calls us to obey him unto the end, to those who abide uh, or do his will abide forever. Uh, turn over, if you will, to Psalm 1. And the first three verses really speak to this I make a marvelous summary of what we've been talking about this morning. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful or scoffers. But his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and on his law he meditates day and night. There's the command of the young men, right? He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he shall prosper. And you see that here in First John, that the one who does God's will abides forever. And then you could jump over to Psalm 23, if you wish. Verse 6, all of you know the verses, the verse, I'm sure. Surely, goodness... And mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know, our obedience really needs to have a forward, eternal look to it. As we walk in relationship with him, rejoicing in that relationship, rejoicing in knowing him in every part of our life, humbly, in our, in our walk before him, um, as we take the things that he's given to us through experience and knowledge and use them in a way that, that recognizes his authority over us just as we have authority over others, and, that our, and all of our activities, all of our strength coming from him, then walking in accordance with his priorities, resisting the temptations that so easily beset us, we may persevere by his grace uh, because that is his plan that the ones that he has chosen ultimately through everything else, he brings them to glorification, Paul says. What a marvelous promise. 
That's why this is a new commandment, because there's hope here. It's not just an endless treadmill. Okay, obey this time. Oh, blow it again. Okay, do it again. Okay, I'm doing it right this time. Oh, blow it again. Oh, and just on and on and on with no end in sight. There's an end in sight. It's called glorification and perfection and abiding with him forever. What a marvelous new take on an old commandment. So, if you are to love your God more than the world, seek him out. Love those whom he loves. Humbly search his word to deeply know him and his forgiveness and turn your back on the sinful corruptions of the world. Long instead for God himself. This is a commandment, is it not, that is worth revisiting. Did you catch that little phrase back in 1 John? I didn't spend any time on it at the time because I was planning on doing it now. In verse 8, what does that say there? It just seems kind of stuck in there. What does that mean? At the same time, as a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the light, true light, is already shining. He's already given you a hint about the, the wonderful newness of this expression of the commandment to love God. Jesus has already won the victory, beloved. Let's live in light of that victory. The darkness is defeated. The light is shining. Love the darkness no more. May God help us live in obedience to him. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your mercies. Thank you for this precious passage that encourages us to love you more than anything or anyone else in this world. And Lord, especially to love you more than the corruptions of this world, the the sinfulness of mankind is brought into it. Lord, help us to walk faithfully with you, to love you with all of our heart, soul, and mind, to see you for what you are as you revealed yourself to us to to know you whom to know aright is eternal life and to walk in obedience to you that we who we who love the Lord should hate evil help us to do that we pray for your glory and love the darkness no more